Hello and welcome to episode two of the e-commerce customer lifecycle with me, Keir Whitaker, and uh, as before, Ross. Hey Ross, how you doing? Hey Keir, thanks for having me back. Well, it's a pleasure. We have uh, four episodes and I couldn't do this without you. Maybe five actually, so uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a real pleasure. So um, just to recap on episode one, we, we talked uh, a lot about the tactics of actually getting people to your website in the first instance and um, kind of we could, we, you know, as per your, your framework called the acquisition, how do we actually... Uh, get visitors, get people, entice them along. And uh, episode two really focuses on on conversion. So once we've uh, we've done all that upfront work and uh, managed, hopefully, to get people to open their browser or their iPhone or Android device, whatever it is, <laughs> how do we actually then uh, yeah, fundamentally encourage them to buy from our from our e-commerce site? So um, why don't you quickly give us a, an overview of the kind of topics uh, again broken down into the four key areas of process platforms. Uh, people and performance that we'll actually look at during the next 40 minutes uh, in relation to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the way uh, the way we like to kind of think about the conversion, you know, phase, if you will, is in, in five kind of key components. So one is sales channels. The second is uh, kind of promotions and incentives. The third is content and navigational experience. Uh, the fourth is design. And the last is uh, sort of testing and optimization. Right, so these don't necessarily fall neatly into those categories. There's a little bit of overlap, um, maybe uh, not quite the same as last week, but um, most of them have a process and you know they have a platform behind them and there's a way of tracking them, all that kind of stuff. So why don't, why don't we kick off with um, sales channels for a start. You know, whether you've enticed people to come to your website or, or a third-party site, what kind of stuff do you talk about when, when you're talking to clients around, around sales channels? Yeah, well, that that's exactly it. Is oftentimes people, uh, you know, they get excited about their website. They they want to talk about, you know, how do they implement Shopify or, or whatnot. And one of the things that's really important to understand is a lot of businesses are are not going to sell exclusively on their site. They might have a retail component, uh, in which POS is going to be a big piece. Um, they might have a wholesale relationships. Um, which kind of create a different online buying experience. And they also might f- sell on third-party websites, um, whether it's strategic partnerships with uh, marketplaces like Zazzle or something, uh, or just listing on sites like Amazon, eBay, um, whether it's inventory liquidation or just building out other other kind of avenues for sales. That's interesting. So in your experience, oh, and just to clarify, POS for, for, for people who may not have heard it, is point of sale. That's kind of in, in-store retail. Um, that, that often hooks into the online side now. So yeah, in your experience, um, do a lot of people come to the table not expecting to sell on third-party sites such as eBay and Amazon? Are they totally focused on uh, just their own website property? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the the strategy definitely um, depends on the company specifically. We find that you know clients who might have really large uh, amounts of inventory uh, with high levels of seasonality. So let's say they do you know a specific clothing line uh, once you know a season, or they are selling electronics where technology evolves pretty rapidly, and and you know a computer from last year is almost out of date. You know those kind of clients oftentimes are looking for other avenues to help kind of assist. Um, you know, in selling excess inventory, and that's where I think you know a, an eBay strategy or an Amazon strategy might complement your e-commerce strategy pretty well because it gives you that additional channel. It allows you to uh, move inventory at different price levels than you're advertising on your core site, uh, so that way you don't kind of diminish the the brand or perception that you're creating on uh, on your on your primary e-commerce site. 
Oh, so so that's interesting. So two questions um, quickly spring to mind there. One is, um, do you find different types of clients are more attracted to eBay than Amazon and that kind of thing? And do you also find then that that people will undercut their own website, but that but but on purpose on these third party channels? Uh, yeah, I mean, assuming that um, they're they're moving older product, uh, you know, I think that's definitely something that uh, we've seen done before. Um, they again, they might have something where they overstocked on a particular unit, so they want to move that quickly. Uh, that, that gives them the opportunity to kind of lower the price, and maybe they delist it from their site. Um, you know, maybe they have both channels active with the same products. Uh, that's probably less common from what we've seen. Um, so I, th- I think it's really more of just moving, you know, moving product that you're no longer trying to feature on the on the core site. And you know, another way to think about that too is you might you might be listing that for a sale price on your core site, so that sale price might match whatever discounted price you have on Amazon or on uh, on eBay or some other platform. Oh right, that's interesting, interesting stuff. So so yeah, so once you've got the sales channel set up and you've talked that through with them. Um, what do you move on to next? Uh, is it just a case of adding the products, or, or what kind of input do you have in terms of pricing, or you know, discoverability, and that, and that kind of stuff? Does do the different channels lend themselves to different tactics there as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think in terms of pricing strategy, oftentimes we kind of lean on our clients to kind of guide that conversation. You know, because uh, you have to think about things like margin. You have to think about things like uh, you know strategic relationships. If you have any kind of exclusivity um, with other wholesalers or whatnot, who are maybe uh, the only ones allowed to sell your product outside of your own site. You know, there are certain things there that you have to kind of um, think about delicately with with clients. Uh, you know, I think that's something that that kind of comes up. I think from a, from sort of an operational perspective, though, it's really important, and this kind of speaks to the whole platform piece here, uh, to, to know that if you are selling in more than just your website, um, that you're going to have to then track orders and track inventory and track um, sales and reports, etc., across all these different sales channels. So this, this kind of gets a little bit uh, ahead of us and kind of more of the episode three when we talk about fulfillment, but having um, a tool in place that allows you to easily track where your different orders are coming from is really beneficial uh, when you start thinking about, one, what channel, are, what channel is performing most effectively, and two, how do we deliver you know, efficiently on all of the um, different sales that we have coming in. Yeah, um, I know that's something that you, you're thinking of working on yourselves as a company, but do you have a... I guess a go-to at the moment for that kind of stuff or will we touch on that more in uh, episode three? Yeah, we'll probably touch on it a little bit more in episode three. Um, there are some great uh, platforms that we've worked with in the past that are out there. Odoro is one that kind of comes to mind. Um, you know, they make it pretty easy to, to track in a few different places. But there's a whole slew of companies out there uh, that, that let you manage your uh, multi-channel um, operations pretty well. Great. So I guess, you know, some of the other topics that we've, we've got listed here are all around this, uh, this notion of the buying decision. What, what inputs can we do as merchants um, on our own website? I mean, obviously, we don't have too much control over these third party channels beyond sort of text and pricing. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my experience, you're kind of guided through that flow. But obviously, with our own mm-hmm. sites, we have a lot more input, um, especially with sort of flexible templating and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so, so, given that you know it's not just a case of throwing up a product and hoping someone will buy, what are some of the inputs um, that we, as kind of designers or, or people advising in that capacity, uh, have control over that we can kind of influence that buying decision? Things like um, maybe price or shipping or 
you know, if something's out of stock, how can we entice people to to maybe pre-order and things like that? What, what, what kind of stuff do you talk about there? Yeah, I think that kind of ties into the notion of um, of discounts or promotions, and how do you kind of incentivize people to to you know take that next step in, in purchasing with you? And I think there, you know, you kind of nailed it on the head. It's it's giving away shipping. Uh, it's offering you know repeat purchase discounts. Um, it's targeting maybe abandoned checkouts. So people who have gotten you know ninety percent of the way through the checkout process, they're just about to buy, but they don't actually hit that submit button. Um, so you have their information, and they're 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 sort of in the system, but you have to kind of reach back out to them and, and kind of encourage them to take that final step. You know that kind of stuff uh, certainly transparency around inventory levels if it's a limited edition product or if it's a product that's about to run out you know those are things i think uh, we've seen some of our clients really take advantage of to kind of encourage people to move quickly especially in the limited release uh, products Um, so you know i think there it's that's as much about creating the awareness on your site uh, as much as it is about kind of promoting you know those offers to clients maybe through your email marketing strategy which we talk a little bit more uh, in, in a future episode here um, you know really I think a company that kind of pioneered the whole uh, promotions aspect from a shipping perspective is um, uh, uh, Zappos you know they they were kind of one of the first that allowed you to buy they'll send you their you know their, their shoes that you want to try on you send back the whole shipping process is free and easy they make it extremely convenient and that was a huge thing that sort of drove their success uh, and something that you know we've seen a lot of other companies uh, try to emulate. Yes, uh, I'm always fascinated by, by by the notion of free because obviously it's being paid for somewhere. But uh, yeah. we we all love we all love that word that four letter word there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, how much would you say um, these different tactics play into the audience that uh, you may be targeting? Have Have you found that different markets are more receptive to these different tactics? So. Uh, you know, discounts or, you know, free shipping or is this just general experience good stuff to factor in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it it definitely depends on the product that you're selling. Um, If you're in sort of the more commodity type business, so let's say you're selling consumer electronics, um, you're selling household staples, uh, you're selling name brand food products, things that are readily available on, on many other merchant sites, um, price is going to be a huge factor. You know, shipping is going to be a huge factor. People want the buying experience to be uh, efficient. They want it to be affordable. You know, they're not coming to you because you've got a great brand. They're coming to you because you've got a great offer. Um, where on the flip side, if you have kind of an exclusive product, maybe uh, it's a you know a clothing a clothing line or, or brand. Uh, maybe it's a unique food product. Uh, maybe it's a, a, a kind of niche consumer product good, like a maker, you know, maker type good that you might see on Kickstarter. Um, these kind of products, you know, it's it's a little bit less around, you know, buy now and uh, you know, ten uh, percent off and sort of the the traditional sales that you see. It's it's a little bit more around the kind of brand and community mm-hmm. building. And I think that things like uh, free shipping certainly are, are great promotions in those situations where. You sort of make it frictionless for people to uh, purchase your product, which might be a product they're not um, very familiar with. You know, maybe you're a new brand of the market, so you want to lower the barriers without lowering the sort of value or the perceived value of your product. Now, that's, uh, that's that's really interesting. A couple of things um, that I'd like to like to touch on. One is this idea of promotions and discounts, and 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 the whole notion of uh, of discounting by um, by its very nature, a lot of high end products don't offer discounting for you know. Mm-hmm it's discounting the product and often people see that as discounting the value um 
Does discounting work better for, as you say, more run-of-the-mill, for want of a better phrase, type of products? If you have a high-end product, do you think sometimes, would, I mean, or I'll ask you the question, would you advise a client against maybe actively discounting because the perceived uh, lack of value in their high-end product? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I think that's where, you know, over the last, let's say, five years or so, maybe seven years, you've seen this huge rise and, and somewhat of a, a, a kind of stabilization now, but a huge rise in kind of the flash sale market, right? So the Rula Laws and the Guilt, um, Guilt Group and, you know, all those organizations that have these kind of flash sale websites where uh, very high-end name brand, you know, jeweler or clothing, you know, brand or whoever can... Um, move a lot of product really quick at a steep, steep discount without kind of tarnishing their brand or tarnishing their perceived value. And you even see it in, in kind of big box retail, right? You'd see Nordstrom, um, which has their sort of their rack outlets, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of Gap and Banana Republic outlets have been popping up. I see them all over the place in Boston now. You know, you see this kind of big move in these um, secondary uh, retail brands, um, even with, you know, the big, bro- big box kind of traditional brick and mortar retailers. Um, so I think that that works both offline and online without uh, kind of forcing a huge compromise on um, the perceived value of the brand because people are going to a flash site. They know it's a flash sale. They know this is not kind of the norm that the brand is is putting out there. They know this is kind of an exclusive deal. No, that's that's interesting. Um, but beyond the uh, the obvious free free shipping or discount codes, that kind of stuff, what kind of content, and I guess this is moving on a little bit, mm-hmm. what kind of content and uh, navigational aids and things like that can we employ um, to aid that buying process, to, to sort of increase the flow to get people to you know add stuff to their basket, and I guess as well reinforce the... Um, you know, that they feel good in buying the product. I mean, I guess I, I also wanted to touch on things that maybe we can add to a site that reinforce the uh, sort of authenticity. Um, there's mixed reports on whether adding, like, you know, um, credit card icons and things, they have a, a positive or negative effect. But things like that, what, you know, a lot of buyers, maybe in different age groups as well, are less, you know, prone to bu- just one-click buying we, we probably are other people might not be so what are the things around the content maybe the way that we can reinforce the validity of the product or the service that we can do on our sites to sort of aid people in that buying decision mm. yeah it's interesting i feel like um you know that kind of perspective on the question of content also kind of extends itself into the idea of design right because if your site has high quality sort of trustworthy design it feels like it was professionally done um, you know it's error free uh, it works across multiple devices multiple browsers I mean the sort of basics that you'd expect out of any any good website you know that right there is probably 80 percent of the battle of the battle uh, you know you've got to get the the sort of core uh, design Right, so that there is the trust factor when someone comes to the website, they they aren't questioning, oh, is this is this an okay site to buy from? Um, so that should be one thing that almost immediately kind of takes care of itself. I think then when when you've kind of established that baseline credibility and trust, uh, you know, through good basic design, um, then you start to think a little bit more around what is the buying process like for our particular audience, you know, for the product that we sell. 
and what sort of content do we need to provide to sort of aid that buying perspective? Um, you know, one company, one e-commerce company, I, I, I love. I, I, I've seen, I, I've purchased some of their stuff. I've seen some of their stuff uh, all the time in my email uh, newsletter subscriptions. Is Everlane? Um, they're uh, uh, a pretty sure California-based uh, clothing brand, and their kind of um, position is. Uh, direct to consumer uh, from manufacturers that you know. Well, not manufacturers that you know, but manufacturers that they kind of build a story on. So their whole thing is creating radical transparency around where they source their products from so that you as a buyer can sort of see the entire story, you know, from raw material all the way to finished good. And they call it kind of luxury basics, so it's a lot of kind of core clothing, you know, that you might, you know, typically get at a Gap or or Nordstrom or something like that. But the, the story that they create around each product is fascinating. Um, I think they're just a great example of, of using storytelling as a way to kind of build trust, build credibility, and kind of aid the buying process of their particular audience because they know they're going after people who really place a lot of value on understanding where their products come from and understanding the the you know impact that their their purchasing decisions have on you know the economy and the world that kind of thing. I, I think it's interesting that you've picked Everlane because, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, certainly when they launched, I believe you actually almost had to become a member. It was uh, cost-free, but there was this uh, kind of velvet rope before you could actually go and buy the goods. And um, I think that that added to it in a way because it's like you're joining some kind of exclusive club as well. So it kind of added to to the experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that, that's re- yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. How, how do you find then? I mean, going back to some of the topics we touched on in episode one, things like social media, maybe uh, blog posts on your site or on third-party sites, uh, things like lookbooks that you've highlighted here in the show notes. You mm-hmm. know, how, how do they the buying process, and do, are they universally good, or do they work better in some instances? Obviously, lookbooks, I guess, with fashion, which is very much a you want to. You know, a T-shirt laid out on a table is obviously not really how you want to see it. But um, I guess things like furniture or, or you know, even electronic goods. How do these things help? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's again that notion of creating a story around your product um, and, and really kind of telling that story in as many channels as you can. You know, I think that's that's the way to think about it is when you're you're creating content. You know, most small e-commerce companies don't have a ton of resources to throw at creating unique content all day every day so it's about creating a few really good pieces of content maybe a landing page for a new you know a new clothing line uh, or maybe a, a backdrop on a manufacturer you've partnered with on your your furniture goods or what have you and then taking that story and then promoting it through the different uh, channels that you have so you know you, you create your landing page and you write a blog post about it then you post that on you know your social media channels and then you throw that in your email newsletter and you're kind of reinforcing that core story in as many channels as you have because you know some people respond really well to Twitter some people respond really well to email um, you know you're going to have kind of a, a mixture you know in your customer base so it's important to craft that story and, and spread it in as many ways as you can so you ensure you're reaching as, as much of your uh, potential audience as possible no absolutely absolutely so what are the areas I mean uh you highlighted navigation as a, as a key consideration, and uh, I guess this also touches on design. But it, I think it's important to add here, and we were talking about this before before we started, that we've not really mentioned the whole sort of visual design side of this. And this is something that you were keen to stress uh, in episode two, that kind of runs in parallel. Um, maybe you could just give us a little bit of the backstory there, as for maybe people are wondering why we aren't talking about specifics of maybe you know. Uh, 
sort of e-commerce uh, kind of uh, norms and uh, sort of the ways that we interact on e-commerce sites? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one area that we always like to start with is really examining how our clients expect their customers to purchase their product. Um, there are there are certain products that work really well from a what I'd call sort of a search-driven navigational experience. So you have a customer who knows what they want. I want a 42-inch uh, LCD you know television. I want to find that as quickly as possible on your site. And in, in that kind of a navigational you know strategy, your your focus is on making a, a, a very easy to use, you know, whether it's a filtering system or a keyword-driven uh, you know, search system, it's a way that a customer with a particular product in mind can get to that product as quickly as possible. Um, you know, aiding the search process, maybe making suggested searches, allowing them to save searches, uh, seeing related searches, anything that sort of helps them get to that specific product that they have in mind as quickly as possible. On the flip side, you know, where uh, you, let's say, have a, a clothing brand that people might not necessarily be fil- familiar with, and it's important to really give them more of a browsing-based navigational experience where they don't necessarily know what they want specifically. Maybe they have the idea of, hey, I want a new shirt or a new pair of pants, um, but they don't know the particular styles you have. Um, you know, if you're a, a, just a one brand shop, then obviously they're not going to be filtering by different brands. So for them, it's about uh, how do you create a browsing experience that's inviting, uh, that's fun and, and very kind of ex- explorative. Um, so finding ways to show, you know, related products or, or better yet related looks associated with what that customer is viewing at the moment. So maybe they're looking at a shirt and there's a pair of pants that go with the shirt. So giving them the opportunity to then click on those pants uh, or maybe tying the lookbooks that you might have to the particular products that you have uh, listed in front of your customers. So they see, you know, a jacket and that jacket's part of the, you know, urban men's fall collection and they they click that lookbook and then they start exploring more and they start reading the story and then they start to discover new products that kind of go along with uh, with that particular product they were looking at so we like to make a little bit of a, a, a distinction between the searching experience and a browsing experience. A lot of sites have both certainly um, you don't want to shut people out but there are certain products that lend themselves better to a search driven experience versus a browsing driven experience. When you're um, talking to clients, do you, uh, how um, in depth do you go on sort of the way that they describe the products and maybe some of the uh, you know the descriptions and keywords and is that something you touch on? Obviously, we talked about SEO in in episode one, but um, you know keywords, tagging, that kind of stuff. Wh- when does this come into play uh, t- to help with that kind of discoverability? Yeah, I think there's definitely an SEO component to it. Um, there certainly is some wordsmithing in there as well. Uh, you know, making sure that you have uh, you know the right kind of core description of a product. Um, I, you know, I, I think for us, what we found is that you know you have to have great text, you have to have a great story behind it, but more and more you have to have a great visual content. You know, you have to have really high quality imagery, uh, ideally video, even if possible. You want to show the product as much as possible. Um, you know, giving the customer the ability to do a very detailed zoom. Maybe you offer three renderings of, uh, you know, furniture products that you might sell, for instance. Um, you know, there's a company called Solindo that does a very, very high-end sort of 3D rendering uh, 
um, engine or they offer this 3D rendering engine uh, for furniture makers, um, which is really neat. You can uh, take a sofa, you can render it in any different fabric and, and you know color set and so on and so forth. So really giving uh, a rich visual experience to the customer to to interact with the product almost. That's interesting because um, certainly on the, a lot of the research that's been done at Shopify around Pinterest and the um, the sort of metrics around Pinterest and, and people pinning things and then finding the products uh, through the imagery. You know, the the design, uh, somewhat disheartening for many uh, web designers and uh, and the like out there, is very much secondary. I I believe that you know if you, when you're building out a store, have have the real imagery, have the imagery that the mm-hmm. shop's going to use, or at least a you know a very close approximation, because that's what people are going to engage with. I think um, fundamentally, the, the the site furniture, as I often call it, around it, while it's vital, is is not really going to necessarily. And feel free to disagree. Influence the buying decision as much as a great photograph of a great product. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, absolutely. I mean, when in doubt. Um, make it white, you know, give it a white background, give it more white space, uh, just let those images shine through. Um, you know, I think every 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 company is going to have, uh, you know, a unique brand, or they should have a unique brand, certainly. And, and part of that brand is going to influence the design, you know, maybe they're more playful, and the, the color scheme they use is going to be more playful, uh, maybe they're more modern or more conservative, so therefore, you know, it's going to lend itself better to a more kind of black and white look. Um, but regardless of kind of the angle you have with your brand, it's it's really about letting that visual experience come through as easily as possible. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. The um, we, we've got some uh, in the notes here. Some some you know quick touching on some of the platforms. Maybe we could just talk uh, quickly about some of the platforms that uh, help with all these processes of you know content and, and navigation and promos and that kind of stuff. I mean, how? How many platforms is too many? I guess you know once you've got your uh, your selling mechanism, whether that be Shopify or some other source uh, way of doing it, your third-party channels, you've got inventory. How, how do you keep on top of all that? And uh, you know, should you throw in a CRM and things like that? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question, and honestly, something a lot of our clients struggle with uh, for a multitude of reasons. Right? There's there's obviously just the, the pure cost associated with having um, various platforms. You know, most of them are on a subscription basis now, so you know it might be twenty bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month. But you do that, you know, five, ten, fifteen times over, and all of a sudden you're talking about a, a substantial amount of uh, of money going out every month to support your efforts. Um, so that's a consideration that has to be given. Uh, number two is is also integration. You know, it's it's great to have all these different platforms. You know, that each do sort of their own unique thing. But if they can't communicate with each other, um, you're going to find yourself doing a lot of kind of manual uh, reconciliation, if you will, or manual transposing of, of data from platform to platform to ensure all your records are accurate. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself spending as much time managing platforms as you are actually getting the benefit out of those platforms. For sure. So oftentimes, yeah, that can be a huge, uh, a huge factor to think about as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, the next sort of uh, section, really, you've got down as as design. Uh, we touched on on some of those aspects, but why don't you let us uh, uh, in, uh, into a little bit more about uh, what you mean by that in relation to conversion? Yeah, certainly. You know, I think there. Uh, you know, I think design is is becoming um, you know 
better and better articulated from a strategy perspective. And you see people, you know, really diving into the the intricacies of user experience design versus user interface design, and you know, all these these different uh, designy buzzwords, if you will. <laughs> uh, but I think kind of putting it in layman's terms. It, it's two things. It's what's the structure of the site, so that navigational experience, the the layout of the visual Im- images and visual media that you want to have on the site, um, the accessibility of, of of getting around the site, and then what is what is the brand, right? What is the, the kind of look and feel? What is the mood that comes across on the site? Um, so to us, that's what the UX and UI or user experience and user interface is all about. You know, and I think where where we always like to start with our clients is is not about them. It's not even about their products, but it's about their audience. So really spending time understanding who their target audience is, you know, crafting a little persona around that audience member. Um, you know, I think most most clients seem to find that they might have two or three different kind of target audiences. They find their client, you know, cu- customers sort of fall in a few different groups. Uh, so it's really important to to articulate what each of those groups uh, look like. Um, so this could be. Uh, understanding just demographic data, you know, age and gender and location and all that kind of stuff. Um, social graphic data, so you know, what kind of likes do they have online and what is their kind of social media engagement like and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then sort of psychographics, how do they think? You know, why do they make buying decisions? Um, you know, what what drives them to to the web to buy versus to retail to buy? You know, what is you know when are they going to be using a mobile kind of context, if you will, to make a purchasing decision? versus desktop um, versus tablet. So thinking about how each of your target audiences kind of go about the buying process and what they're like as a, as a human, um, I think is a really important place to start because only th- it's really only then that you can then start to make decisions around structure and around uh, sort of aesthetics is after you know, okay, well, you know, as a clothing boutique, we target Mary who is you know 28 years old, she's a young professional, she's looking for an upscale but affordable clothing brand she can wear to work. Uh, you know She buys uh, twice a year because she has to restock, so she'll spend $500 per purchase, um, but she really spends a lot of time thinking about those purchases because she has to really make it count. So you know, really kind of getting into that level of detail around the personas and then kind of expanding on that as you get deeper and deeper into the structural and aesthetic design components. How do you as a, an agency gather that that data i mean do you are there quick wins there when you go to a client and say okay just give me your last you know year's worth of sales and you can do some quantitative or qualitative kind of researching these people or uh, any quick wins there and people sort of wanting to who maybe haven't done that kind of um that engagement with a client before certainly like personas and that kind of stuff uh, and, and i guess following on from that the other thing well uh, before i forget it was what if your personas are drastically different you know it mm-hmm. might be that your site attracts um you know people of my parents generation but equally you know people of a generation who've come since me you know that i can't think of a product that that might apply to off the top of my head but <laughs> you know where they don't necessarily there's not a linear kind of single grouping there are two or three groupings how, how does that influence the uh, the design is it maybe a more neutral approach or something like that yeah yeah so so speaking of the first question um you know, I think it's it's a matter of looking at qualitative methods versus quantitative methods. So the qualitative methods are speaking with customers, 
you know, speaking with the, the, the people who run the company, um, having conversations. You know, ideally they're in person, face-to-face. Most of the time that's not reasonable. Um, so maybe they're over the phone. Uh, if that's not possible, maybe they're email surveys, uh, email correspondence, maybe it's a Skype call. Any way that you can just get in front of, you know, a half dozen or a dozen kind of representatives from the different target audiences or constituents, if you will, uh, of a particular uh, client's company. Uh, I think that's just having those conversations, even if they're just 15 minutes, you know, why do you buy from such and such company? You know, what what drove you to them? How did you discover the brand? Just having those conversations reveals quite a bit. Um, It doesn't take too, too much time. And I think the goal there isn't to come back and sort of say, hey, we've got the definitive answer on, you know, exactly who your customer is, but more along the lines of saying, here's some things that we saw. Here's some patterns. Here's some trends. These are the words that people use over and over again to describe you and their brand. Um, you know, These are the words people use to describe their buying process and the decisions that they make in that process. And kind of finding those little things that kind of repeat themselves over and over again. Um, and then on the, qual- the quantitative side, uh, absolutely some quick wins. You know, There are some platforms out there that um, let you take just a list of email addresses uh, and, and physical addresses and such, and then correlate that data, you know, against uh, consensus data or, or sort of census data, or um, you know, some some social media data, or against uh, c- you know consumer purchasing data. So there are ways that you can actually take a database of, of past customers and start to uh, build a richer profile around who those customers are, and try to find trends through that. Oh, it looks like you know eighty percent of our customers actually have a Twitter account. That's really interesting. Maybe Twitter is a great platform for us to to use to target those customers. Or hey, you know what? Looks like only five percent of our customers have Facebook. Unlikely, but let's say if that was the case, and you might know that Facebook isn't necessarily the right platform for you to kind of market your products. I, I guess it could work the other way as well. If you if you had that demographic data, that you realized a you know a large percentage of your online purchases were from a particular geographical region. Uh, you know that could influence maybe pop-up shops or yeah. you know uh, re- retail outlets, and uh, you know it might work that local advertising might be working and uh, and things like that. So I guess it, it could work Absolutely. both ways. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if if do you find? I mean, I was only mildly being tongue-in-cheek with saying you might have uh, different generations coming to the same site, which is of course possible. But if if they are distinct, the personas end up being you know. In two camps, does 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 that have a a big influence, or or would you suggest if they were very very different there that maybe you have two two storefronts catering for different audiences, or has that ever happened to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say it does happen when you look at retail versus wholesale. You know, so a lot of times our clients say, "Listen, we we sell the wholesalers. We want to create." Um, a very different experience for them. They come on, their price point is different. You know, we want to get just get them straight to the product. They don't care about the story. They know who we are. They just want to renew. Um, versus customers, you know, and retail customers who we really need to kind of build that brand relationship with. So that certainly occurs. Um, you know, not not all the time, but frequently enough, it's something that we do think about. Uh, but I think that sort of you know, me versus my grandmother, you know, shopping at the same place. I mean, that's something Amazon faces with all the time, right? I mean, Amazon targets everyone sure um you know so that that's a huge struggle and i think a good place to start is probably there you know what is amazon doing um to kind of equal the playing field uh and i think you know what what you sort of hinted at a little bit earlier is there is a neutral ground um and and that neutral ground is is that most of the structural design decisions that you make are are going to be pretty consistent with the major e-commerce players out there. There there are best practices, you know, using certain size photographs, 
um, you know, having your navigation located in a specific place, having your, you know, call to action or your buy now button uh, above the fold or accessible in kind of the immediate, immediate viewport. Um, these kind of things that, that just sort of make sense. You know, so those, a lot of times those structural decisions don't have to become um, uh, sort of big points of, of innovation. I think you can just work with what works. On the aesthetic side, it's a little bit more of a question of what is your brand? You know, who are you actually trying to target? If you are, as a brand, trying to target both grandmothers and grandsons, um, you know, how, how do you do that from a marketing perspective? How are you kind of telling your story in other places? You know, how are you kind of communicating your message uh, elsewhere and then taking that and then putting it into the context of the site? So it might be... Um, you know, maybe it's a cooking brand. Uh, they sell cookware, and they know that they sell um, bake, you know, baking supplies for grandma, but they also sell, you know, grilling supplies for grandson. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's the situation, right? So, you know, there, um, there's probably something more to that story. You know, is are they going after a particular type of cuisine, or are they going after you know a particular type of food or whatnot? I think it's about kind of exploring what is that underlying message of the brand that does actually appeal to both audiences because there's really it's unlikely that you're going to find a company that just happens to appeal to two very different audiences sure, if there isn't yeah. some sort of shared level yeah no i was uh, merely throwing a spanner in the works there really. <laughs> but i think it's interesting as well when you talk about the brand and 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 how uh, you know that really is is the focus and if they're attracting people from um different uh, different spheres you shouldn't necessarily deviate. I mean, that data is always going to be good, but if they've attracted them through the kind of work that they've done for, through existing branding and so forth, that that's obviously a good thing. I guess maybe these um, these conversations are more interesting maybe if you're coming from maybe a retail space to online and, and then working out. I mean, it's all important, but um, or, or you go through a rebrand and you want to reposition yourself and that kind of stuff, so you don't necessarily leave certain groups that have been profitable for you in the past out of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so finally... You know, you've done all this stuff. Uh, you, you've done all your research. You've uh, followed sort of e-commerce sort of norms and standards, and uh, you know, great product photography. And the, the orders are flowing in. Everyone's happy. You're blogging. You're social mediaing. All this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just sit back and, and relax and don't have to do any kind of uh, tracking or anything, right? Oh, absolutely. You're done. <laughs> you know, you're making millions. You don't have to worry about it. Um, no, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're kind of hinting at something that's, uh, that unfortunately goes um, kind of overlooked oftentimes is the sort of testing and analytics element to all this. Most likely, and unfortunately, but most likely you're not going to get it 100% out of the, out of the gate. Um, you know, your audience is going to evolve. Your products are going to evolve. Your brand is going to evolve. The market in, in general is going to evolve. So you need to constantly be measuring uh, and testing and innovating how you're um, structuring the site, how you're, you're kind of creating that brand experience for folks. So you know, for us, it, it starts with having the right tools in place to measure um, the, the kind of engagement that you have on site. So Google Analytics is sort of an obvious one. Um, Google Analytics, I think we mentioned last time, has a great e-commerce uh, integration. Mm. Um, so getting that set up so that way your order data that's happening, let's say on Shopify, can easily get pulled into Google Analytics and you can start to correlate uh, specific data 
uh, in terms of sales. So you might be able to say, well, um, you know, this source of traffic produces this much in revenue, uh, or the you know number of mobile uh, percentage of mobile visitors correlates to this you know percentage of, uh, of of sales. And it's something I've actually seen Shopify do a pretty good job with over the last couple of months is building up this sort of reporting component um, of the platform. But I'm a big believer in you know the more data the better. Just have have a few different sources. It helps you kind of you know validate and, and ensure that there aren't any kind of uh, oddities in there. So I think that's a great place uh, to start as Google Analytics. If if you're interested in a little bit more uh, kind of in depth and, and more um, sort of granular analytics, there are some great platforms that we've used. Kissmetrics and Mixpanel are two that kind of come to mind that give you more control over mapping out uh, what I'd call the conversion funnel. So exactly what are the kind of subsequent steps that people take when they arrive at your site all the way through the time that they purchase. Um, you know, what are the drop-off rates? If 100 people come to the site and then 50 of, per, you know, 50 of them click on products and then 25 of them click on a specific product and then 10 of them add it to the cart and then five of them, five of them click checkout and then two of them buy, you know, that's very revealing data on your site. Um, if you can see those kind of steps worked out, and these platforms are, are getting pretty good around, you know, knowing that people aren't always that linear, um, so they can kind of show patterns and sort of what are the different cycles that people go through, you know, when they're exploring and purchasing on your site. Does it does it often reveal, um, I guess, structural defects in terms of the way the, the data is presented? Are there any kind of big gotchas there that you 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 kind of glean from this data? Maybe they get to a product page and you know the description's just not there or you know it's just poorly laid out you can see people dropping off of there or you know what from your experience what are the things that you can uh, glean glean from that obviously thinking that a pretty decent online conversion rate is sort of two three percent anyway so there's going to be a lot of drop off mm-hmm. but you know mm-hmm. from people added to the cart or they dropped off at the product page what what are the sort of things people should look out for there yeah, one thing I think that's I just love to to kind of reinforce to people is that you know data is only a starting point. So you've got this great data and you notice things like oh wow, like we're getting you know the huge drop off once people get to the product page. Why is that? That's the key right there. Is the why is that? The data, whether it's Google Analytics or Mixpanel, they're not going to tell you. You really, they can't, right? They don't know why people are dropping off. All they can say is, hey, look, there's 50% <laughs> drop off rate on this page. And it's up to you as a designer, as a developer, as a marketer to, to give that some thought and then start to experiment with reasons why. Um, and this is where platforms like Optimizely, which is an A-B testing platform, allow you to run little experiments to see if there is a specific reason why. So let's say you find this huge drop-off on the product page. And you look at the product page and you say, hmm, you know, maybe maybe it's because the image is on the right versus on the left. Well, you can use a platform like Optimizely to actually test whether there's a higher conversion rate on a template with a left side image versus a right side image and run that data and then you can actually see if there's any kind of change or improvement um, you can do this over and over again so maybe it's the image maybe it's the title maybe it's the location of the buy button maybe it's the color of the you know the the navigation bar or whatever it might be so using a platform like optimizely to kind of build on the theses or or kind of hypotheses that you have um coming from the data that you get in platforms like google analytics Yes, it's uh, A-B testing is, is, is fascinating and frustrating all at the same time. It's, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, because you, you go down one route and you change something, and then uh, as a result of that, you change something else, and uh, you go back to in a worse position than you were before <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, never-ending uh, cycle sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just finally then, what are the sort of other key metrics um, that, that's worth, uh, I guess, 
uh, monitoring things like um, we talked about conversions per channel so that would be whether it's your, your main site links through social media Amazon eBay third-party sites wholesale etc um, things like average order size why, why would that be important yeah um, so one number is sort of kind of ties into all these that we like to think about uh, or we like to call is gross profit per visitor so if you can get to a point where in this is oftentimes very difficult but the, the sort of uh, golden nugget if you will the golden goose is figuring out your gross profit per visitor so how much actual gross profit are you getting for each visitor to your website and the idea there is if you look at how many people come to your site and then how many of them actually end up buying and what the average order size is and then what your average margin is on that average order size and then take that that number all the way back to the total number of visitors you have you can actually get a sense for how profitable is each visitor to your site um, and then from there you can start to look at it by let's say traffic source or by device or by physical location you can start to see this number and sort of how it changes uh, in each of the different um, demographics that you have or different traffic sources that you might have so so that's that's a really kind of fun metric that we like to play with sometimes it's a little difficult to calculate for a lot of customers because product margins change dramatically so therefore having an average might not necessarily be great representative even average order size sometimes are all over the place um, you know that's when you start to have to put your statistician's uh, hat on and, and start to kind of get into some more uh, radical uh, excel work um, but you know at the core of it i think having at least an awareness of how many people are coming to your site of those how many people are actually adding something to the to the shopping cart of those how many are actually checking out and then of those, actually, how many end up purchasing, you know, altogether, they complete the entire purchase process. And then what is the average order size? And at least with that, you can have a rough sense for, you know, how much average order you can expect, you know, per customer, per visitor to your site, which is a good gauge as you start to think about, okay, if we drove another thousand people to our website, how much could we roughly expect in revenue? You know, if you knew that you have a 1% conversion rate, uh, and on that 1% conversion rate, you get an average order size of, let's say, $100, then 1,000 people would turn into 10 visitors, which would be a you know, $100 order, $1,000 in revenue altogether. And then you can start to think about things like, okay, well, if 1,000 visitors turns into a, you know, $1,000, um, how much can we pay to get another thousand visitors? So that kind of gets back into the acquisition piece, where you start thinking about, you know, should I be paying for AdWords? Should I be paying, you know, a social media consultant? Should I be paying an SEO specialist? Uh, if they're going, if they can only drive another thousand people to my site, are they going to cost me more than a thousand bucks? You know, you, these are the things that you can start to ask and, and really try to get into understanding the ROI of kind of these marketing activities once you understand that data. Yeah, and I guess that would also feed back into product development or lines that you stock, and and, and maybe you know, maybe you realize that how big your business could grow or or, or not really. Um, so that that's uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Metrics are always uh, we can use them for for, for good and uh, and for bad. Really, they can uh, <laughs> brighten up your day <laughs> or equally uh, uh, not. <laughs> um, yeah. So great. So that's. Um, kind of everything we had for this episode we've got um the, the next one's all about fulfillment so we've talked about how you actually get mm -hmm. visitors to your site and the strategies involved in that in episode one this one's all around once we've got people to the site how can we uh, entice them to to go through that uh, buying process and also you know measure it and um, why measuring and then sort of targeting 
is is so important to the success of an online, uh, well, at least a business that has online as one of its uh, channels. Um, so episode three, let's um, talk a little bit about that, and that's all around fulfillment. Yeah, exactly. It's it's how do you get people the product once once they've purchased it? Um, so thinking about things like. Okay, an order comes in. You know what channels are coming in from. What is the status of that order? How are we going to handle packaging? How are we going to handle shipping? Uh, are we doing the fulfillment ourselves versus having a, a drop shipper or some fulfillment partner? Um, you know, dealing with things like uh, support and, and all that. So, really l- thinking around the operations of of getting that product to the customer once it's made. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we uh, we look forward to uh, uh, chatting about that uh, in the next few weeks. But um, yes, uh, we'll. Uh, link up uh, some of the uh, platforms and um, uh, other sort of uh, things that we've talked about in the in the post that will accompany this but uh, you can always get in touch with myself uh, Kia at Shopify.com and uh, Ross also uh, what's the best email again for you Ross? It's Ross at GrowthSpark.com Brilliant, well as always thank you for your time and uh, thank you for joining me early in the morning from Boston and uh, we'll <laughs> no be problem. back uh, very soon, thanks again Thanks Kier, take care